An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're very pleased to welcome Chris Jurgens as our guest. Chris has what may be the most intriguing job title of anyone we've ever hosted. He is the, quote, senior director responsible for reimagining capitalism, end quote, at the Omidyar Network. Omidyar Network is the hybrid corporate and foundation organization funded by eBay founders Pierre and Pam Omidyar. It does both for-profit investing and grant making. Chris comes to Omidyar from USAID, where he directed the Center for Transformational Partnerships at the Global Development Lab. And before that, Chris was in Accenture, where he managed his global portfolio of international development work. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, John. It's great to be with you. So what's your origin story? I mean, few people grow up saying, I want to reimagine capitalism. How'd you become the person you are? What set you along this career arc? John, to start real early, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, the son of Catholic school teachers. My father taught social studies as a kid. We'd look at maps together. Famous story I told, I was at a playground when I was three, and my dad asked, where are you sailing to, Chris? And I said, to Madagascar and then to Sri Lanka. And so from a very early age, I had an interest in the world. And I'd say I came at age at a time, this is the late 1990s, when things looked bright for democracy, capitalism, tech, global development, the economy was growing, liberal democracy seemed to be spreading. At Georgetown, we were reading Francis Fukuyama's The End of History, talking about had we reached the end state of these, these systems with liberal democracy and capitalism for all. That was the ethos of how you achieved impact in the world is making those systems work better. So that took me into the field of, you know, sort of market-based solutions to poverty. How do we make markets work better to address global development challenges? Started at Accenture and Management Consulting, quickly pivoted into their new uh, practice called Accenture Development Partnerships, which was all about the ESOs. How do we bring business and technology skills to international development to help solve development challenges better, faster? and in new and innovative ways. We worked as a set of um, business and technology consultants with a wide range of international development organizations from Oxfam to World Vision to the World Bank on things like microfinance, on helping NGOs leverage technology to do their work better, on bringing private sector supply chain skills to humanitarian relief. And that work then took me to the opportunity to work at USAID and head up the team that was at the nexus of this. How does USAID leverage private sector partnerships, entrepreneurship to advance its global development goals? And from there came to Omidyar Network, originally on a role focused on that theme of impact investing. How do we grow that as a field and industry to leverage private capital for the public good? But it was in 2016 where I think a lot of us stepped back and said, compared to that 20 years ago when I came up with all the optimism, 
a recognition that a lot of these systems were working, right? That, that capitalism was contributing to many of our societal ills, that there were major downsides in terms of how tech evolved. And clearly now we see more than ever in this country and the world, how democracy is under threat. And so that was the pivot to the humbly titled impact goal we have of reimagining capitalism at Omidyar Network, really asking the upstream questions around the health of these fundamental systems underpinning our society. And as a philanthropic platform that we have at Omidyar Network, what can we do to really deal with the upstream root cause issues that are leading to the challenges we're seeing in capitalism, democracy, and, and technology today? So it is a great title, and it, it, honestly, it's one that I could aspire to. Um, but what does being responsible for reimagining capitalism really mean? Uh, it seems to me there are multiple layers to that from what you do all day long. But first, I guess you need an overarching view of what capitalism should be, as opposed to what you observe capitalism to be today. So can you paint that picture for us? I start from the point of view, and we at Amidia start from the point of view that we are capitalists, that we believe in the power of markets and entrepreneurial innovation. Right? Pierre was the founder of eBay. We've been impact investors for a decade. We need the power of markets to drive growth and prosperity and empowerment for all. But we think we need to pretty fundamentally restructure how those markets work in order to get to the outcomes we want for society and the planet, because the current manifestation of capitalism isn't working. Rising inequality, persistence of structural racism, the urgency of the climate crisis, the fragile state of democracy. And we think this starts with really ask the question of what is the purpose of the economic system? And for too long, we think that's been too narrow of a view that's grown out of the Milton Friedman, neoliberal ideology of the past 40 to 50 years that viewed free market capitalism as sort of end unto itself, right? That you, you free markets up, you let entrepreneurial innovation thrive, that will lead to growth and that will lead to optimal outcomes for society. We believe that's wrong. The data show it's wrong. Human experience shows that wrong. Trickle-down economics uh, does not work. Unfettered markets are a, a fallacy. Markets have to be structured. They're human constructions that are shaped by power and politics and idea and environmental disruptions. And so our view is that for the past 40 years, we've been orientating and designing our society to serve the well-being of markets. And what we really need to do is design our markets to serve the well-being of society. And some of the values we think should underpin that are human dignity, empowerment, uh, well-being for all, the societal outcomes we all want to live thriving lives as individual humans and have that as our North Star rather than falsely having free market ideology narrowly measured around things like economic growth as that North Star. We think that's what's, what's taken us off track fundamentally. And so we do have the bold name of reimagining capitalism for our, our impact work at Omidyar. We do not pretend to have all the answers, but some of the pillars we've put out that we think should guide this endeavor of building an economy that works for everyone is one grounding our, our vision in this new set of ideas and, and shared values. And can we have a shared vision of what the values and outcomes we're seeking from the economy? Uh, two to build an explicitly anti-racist economy, that structural racism has been deeply embedded in how we've run the economic system. And we need very proactive action to undo that and make this economy inclusive for all. 
Three, more fundamentally address power, how economic power concentrates and how political power concentrates and recognize an economy can only work if there are checks on concentrated power and mechanisms to build power for those that, that haven't had it. And fourth, that leads us to really rethinking that, that fundamental tension and how you design economy since the beginning of time in terms of the, the role of uh, government, markets, and communities, and how you get the right set of checks and balances that allow each to play their, their most important role. And then the final theme, we think, is the previous economic paradigm came out of the 20th century. We're now facing fundamentally new challenges in the 21st century from climate change to the transformative role technology is having on society. And we need an updated form of economic thinking to bring us into the realities of, of 21st century challenges. So sort of implicit throughout that was the egalitarianism of, uh, you, you mentioned non-racist, you mentioned equaling power. And in the past, you said we, we need to reimagine capitalism in order to address rising inequality and a freeing social contract. Now, I agree with all that, but in, in effect, those are the easy questions, right? It, it, it's sort of like, no one wants racism. No one wants a free social contract. But there is a question of how much inequality is needed to encourage improved standards of living. The reason you should say you're a capitalist is because no other economic system has brought so many people out of poverty in the world. It um, allocates capital better than any other system. And, and so the question is, in effect, how much inequality is needed to encourage improved standards of living for the majority of the world? Total egalitarianism, sort of Karl Marx-style socialism, doesn't work. But neither does red in tooth and claw capitalism of Marie Antoinette type of let them eat cake levels in inequality. And indeed, even those people who call themselves free market capitalists Ask them how they would like to live in a world without a truly mixed economy where contract laws are enforced, for instance, as opposed to just who has power. So how do you find the Goldilocks level of equality or inequality, for that matter, to allow allocation of capital to be efficient, as you say, not necessarily for the market, but for society, while not having a freeing social contract? That's a fantastic question, John, and one we could have a whole college course on. Uh, I'd go back to first principles to this notion of for both a healthy economy and a healthy democracy, all people need to have agency, voice, and some means to exert power in the system. And there are certain levels of inequality and exclusion that are unacceptable on a moral and ethical level. To bring it back to, to structural racism, if you systematically excluded Black or Indigenous communities from economic participation, as we have in the U.S., you, you cannot, by definition, have an equitable economy or democracy with, with a, a reasonable level of inequality. Few, on the other hand, as you said, are posing a uh, Marx-Engels version of communism with state control over the means of production and dictating top-down the levels of inequality. Rather, I, what I and a media network and our allies focus on is the notion that capitalism and democracy are fundamentally intertwined. That if you have a democracy in which workers, people of different races, different religions have voice in an economic system, 
they can then shape the rules that govern the economy and determine democratically the level of inequality that's acceptable in a democracy where we're, we're all trying to work together. And then I think it's interesting to say, if you have those guardrails of democracy empowerment in place, different societies may choose different levels of what the Goldilocks level is. The United States has a history of rugged individualism and may tolerate a higher level of inequality than a Japan or a Scandinavian country that as a deep part of its culture has a stronger communitarian and social cohesion ethos relative to the in rugged individualism value set. And so uh, I, I think no one entity can prescribe that Goldilocks level of inequality, but we think if you have a strong democracy in place that empowers everyone and has checks and concentrated power, the people can, can make those choices. So let's move from overall vision and strategy to tactics. How do we move towards this type of reimagined capitalism? What tools should be used? You've said in the past that you are, quote, passionate about harnessing the power of the private sector and private capital to drive impact. And you seem to be focused on building capital market institutions and capabilities. Can you give us some examples of the type of organizations you're working with and the issues they're trying to solve? In terms of the kinds of levers we're focused on and in, in, in driving change, we come back to the mantra of ideas matter, power matters, and the rules of the game matter. Um, with ideas, we're looking at what are the, the values and ideas that underpin how we think about the economy and its roles in society that involves work with how we teach and think about economics. And as the way much of this generation had been trained in teaching economics and learning economics through a neoliberal and neoclassical frame, right and up to date with the 21st century, do we need new ways of uh, teaching economics and new frames for the dominant way we think about our economy to, to replace those dominant frames. And so some of our work is with upstream in the academy with think tanks, recognizing that it was philanthropy and think tanks and academia that set in place the current paradigm 40, 50 years ago. And we need that role of those sorts of stakeholders at that level to shift the fundamental ideas piece going forward. Second, we think the view of the economy hasn't sufficiently taken into account the role that power dynamics play in shaking the economic system. It's been a sort of more technocratic frame of how the economy works with supply and demand curves without fully recognizing the importance of economic and, and political power. And so a second portfolio we're focused on at Omidyar Network is worker power with a particular focus on the United States to say workers have seen their economic power decline with stagnant wages, their bargaining power decline with the fall of unions. How do we strengthen workers as a voice in the economy to be a counterweight to corporations and capital markets that have amassed significant power and voice in both the economy and in the political system. And then third, the rules of the game. We have to define and write the rules that govern our markets. We think too much of the past 40 or 50 years has been taking guardrails off of markets that have led to both uh, inequality and, and environmental harms, and that we need to, to strengthen those roles. And so we work on a range of policy advocacy priorities on rules strengthening. And then the portfolio I lead at Omidyar Network is specifically focused on corporations and capital markets within this broader equation to say corporations and capital markets are the engine of our economy and a shareholder 
value maximization form of, of that has been a key engine of inequality and in some of the challenges we're seeing. And within that, we're encouraged by the conversation around stakeholder capitalism. We're encouraged by ESG and impact investing. We're encouraged by individual business leaders standing up to do right by their workers and produce products and services that solve problems for people and planet. And we recognize that voluntary action by business leaders alone will not get us there because the system will strike back. The system is designed to maximize profits and maximize shareholder value above all else. And until we shift the rules and incentives that drive that decision-making, good actions by individual business leaders are, are, are too often punished by the markets, whether that's a corporate leader leading a sustainability strategy or an investor investing for impact. And so within this work, we're really focusing on two nexus points of what drives corporate and investor decision-making. One, the context of corporate governance, and, and second, the context of capital markets and how particularly large institutional investors allocate their capital and looking at some of the, the policy changes that drive corporate and investor decision-making, things like fiduciary duty, things like mandatory ESG disclosure, things like how taxes incentivize short-term value extraction versus long-term value creation. And then second, we're looking at investors as a source of power and influence that can push companies in the right direction. Something you've written about and spoken about extensively, John, this power of investment stewardship of pension funds that represent beneficiaries, teachers, firefighters, office workers that have a long-term interest in a healthy society and sustainable economic growth. And how can they be a positive influence on corporate decision-making to counter some of the pressures towards short-termism and financialization? One phrase I have not heard you say, and given your previous role at USAID, I would imagine it to be certainly prevalent in your thinking are public-private partnerships. And for my entire life, people have talked about public-private partnerships as you know, some type of magic elixir that makes the economy stronger, faster, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Certainly there are some successes, but by and large, I see a lot of dash dreams and ineffective, cumbersome bureaucratic efforts. When do public-private partnerships work? Do they ever, what are the conditions necessary? And when should we just acknowledge that the conditions are set for failure? John, I think it's fair to say that some of the hype around public-private partnerships has sometimes exceeded the results, while also being able to point to examples of real success on the ground from these collaborations. From my experience at USAID in particular, I'd, I'd point to a few contexts where I think they, they can really work and be effective and, and have demonstrated doing so. One is where an industry can come together on a pretty competitive basis to try to work with government and civil society to solve a systemic problem that constrains that sector. So take the example of tech companies investing in fast-growing emerging markets. USAID built some partnerships with tech companies like Intel, Microsoft, Cisco, in geographies like Vietnam and Burma, where they were rapid growth markets, but they faced fundamental challenges in getting talent and that the educational systems in those countries weren't 
oriented to producing sorts of talent that those companies needed to employ more or engineer software engineers and other roles. And so those companies could come together to say, here is collectively at a sector level, a key business challenge that's fundamentally constraining our growth. Government has to be in the lead in driving the educational system. International donors can play a role in providing funding and expertise to this. Let's build a set of partnerships fo focused on transforming tech education into the 21st century. You've seen similar examples of this with cocoa companies working together in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire on farmer productivity and environmental challenges facing the cocoa industry. So pre-competitive challenges that could bring together a whole industry around a shared challenge and where the, the business incentives are pretty fundamental. It's an existential risk or fundamental challenge that the business is, fair, is facing. So they're all in and wanting to participate and they need government as a partner. That's interesting that they tend to be around technological brewers. I mean, I think the, the classic success story in the United States going back a century now, but was Tennessee Valley Authority and rural electrification. And there you had a technology and um, government partnership. So maybe that's one of the conditions that works. But you mentioned Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana and Vietnam. And sometimes we hear in the United States and other developed markets have a sort of economic myopia. We think if there are answers, we of course have them because we have this high standard of living. Um, and you've worked on these issues around the world. You mentioned some, but you've also worked on off the grid energy product projects, for instance, in sub-Saharan Africa, encouraging entrepreneurship in Latin America. What can we in developed markets learn about capitalism from developing markets? A few thoughts, John. One is developing markets can sometimes be a more fertile ground for disruptive innovation. Um, the U.S. and European markets have such sophisticated economies that the fundamental structures and systems have already been built out for most parts of the economy, from the financial sector to transportation. And that means they're relatively entrenched, are hard to change. It can be difficult to change without huge addressing huge legacy costs. And so you look at an example of mobile payments and generally how do you move money quickly and efficiently in an economy? And you go to a place like Kenya, where you had disruptive innovation like uh, M-Pesa, uh, which allowed money transfer person to person, person to business, very seamlessly and in a low cost way throughout the economy. And compare that to how difficult it is to move money in the United States. I've just lived through this trying to get wire transfers done in this country. And because emerging markets didn't have the fundamental infrastructure in place, we were creating it from, from scratch and could do it in a better way than in contexts where we have legacy systems. And then I think a second broader point about learning from developing markets is I think this is where some of our, our faith in markets, when they're, when they're structured well and generating growth, can feed back into our optimism for capitalism. We've seen more people lifted out of poverty in the past 25 years than in the rest of human history, in large part to bringing uh, markets to places where they were needed and didn't exist uh, before. And so I think you looking at growth throughout Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Middle East, Southeast Asia of multiple examples of industries driving growth and prosperity through the power of entrepreneurship and private sector innovation 
in concert with governments gaining the capacity to make those markets work well. And in a time when we're becoming more pessimistic about the role of markets in this country, I think we can't forget that in much of the world, the problem is not enough markets and we need to bring more market power to drive growth. I am always pleased when people exhibit some level of nuance. When people say, for instance, capitalism is a failure without acknowledging all the wonderful things that it does, it, it sometimes just rings political as opposed to practical in the markets. So it's trying to respond to the question of like, well, what does it mean to structure markets to get to the silo outcomes you, you want, right? Exactly. And sometimes those incentives are quite aligned and sometimes they can be really misaligned. And that's what the, the design process is about. Let's finish up with some short questions and answers, perhaps more personal. How do you relax? Family, nature, and laughter. With family, COVID took some things away from us, but it gave us gifts as well. More time with family. We instituted a family movie night with my nine-year-old and three-year-old son, and that's continued post-COVID. So that's a great sense of joy and relaxation. The great outdoors, hiking and, and nature, being out on the water in a, in a raft, and laughter. I enjoy good comedy. I'm a fan of stand-up. A uh, big fan of folks like Mike Briglia going to see John Mulaney next month. Family, nature, and laughter. What music do you listen to? Quite a broad mix, John. I've a uh, benefit of having exposure to different types of music for different bases of my life. Singer songwriters like Peter, Paul, and Mary from my parents growing up. Uh, picked up jazz playing saxophone in high school, so appreciate be bebop and big band. I fell in love with salsa and vallenato Latin music living in Colombia as a, when I studied abroad in Bogota. And then my coming of age music at the 90s was alternative rock and hip hop, the Radiohead and Smashing Pumpkins and Tribe Called Quest and Beastie Boys. And most recently, I picked up an appreciation for Rafi for my young kids. And so I now can draw on those multiple music inspirations today, depending on the mood and the season. What are you reading right now? This is a great opportunity for me to give a plug to the new book by my Omidyar Network colleague, Elena Botea, who just released a book called Delinquent Inside America's Debt Machine. And it's a fantastic story of the credit card industry in this country, coming from her perspective of having worked at a major credit card issuer and seeing some of the challenges of how shareholder-driven capitalism manifests in an industry like that an industry that's populated by good people who want to do the right thing, but an industry writ large that is serving to put more Americans into debt and encourage more consumer debt among segments of the population that, that, that can't afford it, then is optimal for society. So it, it combines her experience at Capital One, uh, on the ground research and storytelling of going out and talking to Americans across the country who've been impacted by debt. And so She's a great colleague and a great writer, and it's also a story that tells a bigger picture around what's working in capitalism and what isn't. So a plug for Elena's book. What's the name of the book again? Delinquent, Inside America's Debt Machine. If you could be on vacation right now, where would you be? I had a very memorable vacation this summer in Northern Italy and Switzerland, going to places like the Dolomites in Lake Como and the Swiss Alps. And it reminded me that that is my happy place, mountains with water, that I've appreciated from some of my other favorite vacations to places like the South Island of New Zealand and Patagonia and the Croatian 
coast and Halong Bay in Vietnam. So I find the intersection of pristine water with pristine mountains to be quite uplifting. And so if I could go on another vacation right now, I'd, I'd pick one of those venues. Last question. If you could magically talk into everyone in the world's ear, what would you tell them? So when you spend uh, your day with the heady goals of reimagining capitalism, I think where I go is, is to somewhere more grounded and immediate and personal. That yes, we're trying to change these big complex systems, but how are you impacting people in your daily life? And I go back to the Maya Angelou quote, at the end of the day, people won't remember what you said or what you did, but they'll remember how you made them feel. And so my whisper in the ear of everybody this morning would be, what are you going to do today with your family or at work or in your community that's going to make somebody feel something that they'll remember you for, feeling loved, feeling valued, feeling heard, or, or feeling appreciated? Thank you. Our guest today has been Chris Jurgens from Omidyar Network. Chris, I noted a couple of rules of three that you had. Professionally, ideas matter, power matters, and the rules of the game matter. And then personally, your happy places of family, nature, and laughter. Two good rules of three that I think we'll take with us. So thanks much, Chris. Thank you, Tom. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John McCormick, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor O'Higgisa, John Lukumnik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.